Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Psalms of Refuge, with a message titled, Hope for the Persecuted. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 7 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Psalm 6 is the psalm of a man who's being persecuted by his enemies, but in that case, that is in the case of Psalm 6, the persecution has been permitted by God in order to chastise, rebuke, and discipline his servant for a sin. There's not been a proper turning from sin. So David's hardship, the one he endures from his enemies, that's God's tool to bring about a change in his heart. So to get the psalmist, who's David, to hate sin more deeply. That is, the enemy may be raging against David, but God's using that enemy to bring about holiness in David's heart. And that's what David's enemy didn't anticipate. But Psalm 7 is different. See, just like Psalm 6, the issue here is the hostility of evil men against David. Indeed, the heading of the psalm begins with a shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. So here's a little note of explanation. A shigion is probably a musical notation. So apparently this psalm was to be sung in a passionate and rapid manner. Now, past that basic explanation, we get a a note about the context in which the psalm was originally written. Uh, We don't know anything about Cush. There have been a number of theories, but none of them are conclusive. The material we find in the life of David, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, well, it never mentions this man. And yet, clearly, David's quite aware of him and the harm he's done and the harm he intends to do. And Cush was a real problem. You know, one little hint is that we're told he was a Benjamite. And as you may remember, King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so it seems likely to me that this man, Cush, harbored a deep hatred of David, perhaps based on some kind of an affinity with King Saul. Perhaps David has already been appointed king and Cush is seeking revenge. But more likely, this incident happens before David became king. Saul was seeking to kill him, but this man had found a way to harm David even more than Saul's threats. When I read that, I'm reminded of a small line. It's found in 2 Timothy 4.14, and there Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So just like Cush, and we don't know anything about this man named Alexander. I mean, some have suggested that since he was a coppersmith, he most likely was involved in the production of idols, and he saw Paul as a threat. And as Paul's preaching of Christ was growing and Alexander saw that his city was changing, well, he was determined to use whatever influence he had and whatever political power he might have had to to harm Paul in every way. I mean, perhaps it might have even been a physical assault on Paul that injured him. Well, others think that Alexander might, you know, be the same man Paul excommunicated from the church earlier in 1 Timothy. That is, he was a false teacher, but I don't know that to be the case, but I hope you see, sometimes we're not told of all the people who have done harm to the godly. They seem like minor players to us. They they don't affect the overall growth of God's people, but yet Satan uses them to great effect to harm one of the servants of the Lord. So let me get back to the theme of Psalm 7. I began by saying that in Psalm 6, David acknowledges that his enemy has been used by God in order to rebuke him for a sin, but that's not the case in Psalm 7. Here, David is entirely innocent. He's done nothing to bring this about. And that's an important lesson. 
Not all hardships that Christians face is due to a rebuke for sin. And we know that to be the case. Who has suffered like our Savior Jesus, and yet he committed no sin? When Alexander the coppersmith did harm to Paul, Paul had not done anything wrong. And today, when Christians all over the world are being persecuted for their faith, it's not that they've done wrong. See, in most cases, it's because they've done right. They, as Jesus told us, are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that's the background we need as we study Psalm 7. You know, in the first two verses, we read the prayer of a persecuted man. Psalm 7, 1 to 2. O Lord my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Now clearly here David is in great danger, and David being a man after God's own heart, instinctively turns to God. I take refuge in you, he says, and then David adds, it's not just this one man Cush. There are others as well. I have many pursuers. I think it's likely that this psalm was written before David was king, and during that time, all manner of men were hunting him. He doesn't know if he's going to escape, but he does know that if God chooses, God's going to preserve his life. And so David assumes his first business is not to develop a strategy of escape, but to plead to God for deliverance. Now then, notice what David says when he imagines what should happen if God doesn't protect him. He says, these men will tear his soul apart like a lion. You know, it's an image that David would have understood quite well. You know, as a young shepherd, he had seen the damage that lions would do to the flock of sheep. And once the lion drags the prey away, there's no hope for the sheep. And if these enemies, says David, succeed in dragging my soul away, I'm not going to come back. See, it's curious to me that David says the enemies seek to tear his soul apart. And the Hebrew word is nephesh. And it is correctly translated here. It means soul. However, some commentators argue that the Hebrew word is sometimes simply used as a synonym for one's life. And so if if all David is saying is, you know, they want to kill me, that in itself, that would be a serious threat. And many believers today live under just such a threat. But if David really did mean to communicate that they want to tear his soul apart, he means that they want to tear from him his confidence in God. They want to damage his spiritual life so that his confidence in God is shaken. You know, their intent is far more diabolical than we could possibly imagine. And with that, David moves from the crisis he's in to speak about his own innocence. And we'll read about that in a moment. But before we do, we need to settle on this matter of innocence. I mean, after all, who is innocent of sin, right? And whenever we read of David protesting his innocence, I don't want us to read as if he's claiming sinlessness. And furthermore, I myself have been intrigued by a little line in the writings of Paul, and it's in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, where he says, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And that's to say, who can acquit themselves? No one can. God, the objective judge, will evaluate every action we've taken. Paul says, I don't have the capacity to evaluate myself the way God evaluates me. Now, with that in mind, how should we understand the protestations of innocence that we sometimes find in our Bibles? You know, an example, Job's debate with his three friends, that's a constant theme. They say, look, you've sinned, that's why you're sick. And he says, I've done nothing wrong. And See, I raise this issue because there are some who really struggle with this. See, when they go through hard times, they feel chastened for sin, even though they're unclear as to what they might have done. 
So let me try to settle this from what David is saying. And I'm reading here Psalm 7, 3 to 5. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. So let's see if we can get a sense of what David is saying. He speaks of wrong in his hands, which is a reference not to what he may have thought or even an inward act of sin. In this regard, we're all guilty before God. But David is speaking about specific actions, and here he mentions two potential ones. First, he says, if I've repaid a friend with evil. Now, I'm reminded here of David's words, Psalm 55, 12 to 14. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. See, David says, the worst thing that happened to me is not when a sworn enemy attacked me. And I expected that. But the worst that happened is when a dear friend turned and became my adversary. He says, I can hardly bear that. Jesus had that happen to him. It was in the case of Judas, the man who was with him for three years. And David had it in the person of his son Absalom. You know, years ago, a wonderful Christian leader from Romania, whom I knew personally, whose bravery in times of communism was legendary, he told me of a dear friend with whom he had often prayed all those years of communism. He said, all the while, that man was reporting on my activities to the communists. See, this devastated him. And in my own life, there is no wound that I bear so deeply as when a dear friend turned to do me harm. And others say the same. But we do know there are those who even gossip against their friends. Someone criticizes their friend and they join in. Or some know how to play both sides. And still others don't defend their friends while there are others who are destroying them. They, they prefer to stay on the sidelines. And when we become like that, we prove ourselves to be unworthy friends. And David thinks that if he had been that way, he should have had no complaint when men rose up against him. This month, we're encouraging you to request Dr. John's series, The Time of Your Life, as our free gift to you. As you listen and examine what the Bible has to say about how we use the time we're given, you'll be equipped and encouraged to make your days matter for eternity. Studying the Bible makes a difference. One listener wrote, My prayer for Back to the Bible Canada, God willing and God permitting, is to concentrate all efforts to affirm believers and to speak to the young generation. The times we are living in demand it. As always, we're so grateful for your gifts that enable trustworthy Bible teaching to be shared day after day in your community across Canada and around the world. You sustain this ministry. To request the time of your life or make a gift to support Bible teaching, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. David adds one more sin. He says, if I had plundered or attacked my enemy without cause. Now, we need to think about that. I mean, imagine David has an enemy, and then when his enemy poses no threat to him at all, 
But there's an opportunity that arises. David decides to use his advantage for his own gain. So we have to imagine how that might have occurred. You know, for one, we might remember Saul relieving himself in the cave and David's men say, here's your chance. David refuses. I mean, for one, he's not going to strike down the Lord's anointed. But second, he does not believe his own men who tell him that it was God who delivered your enemy into your hands. And that's the point. David says, if it seems to you that a man or woman who is your enemy is found in a position of vulnerability, and then you say, ha, I have a chance to strike that person down. I can ruin his reputation. I can destroy his business. I can do harm to his family. I could harm him. Now, you see, here's a problem. David knows that if the enemy is attacking, he has the right to protect and defend himself. But what if the enemy poses no threat? And yet he seizes a moment against his enemy. David says, that would be a sin big enough. Had I done that, I would not be in the place of asking God to save me from my pursuers, for I would have become an evil man. In that case, how would I stand before God and ask for deliverance from evil men when I myself had become an evil man? And so when David is proclaiming his innocence, I hope you see this, he's not saying he's sinless. But how does one pray, protect me from evil men, when one has been wicked to others and one has been a persecutor? That's the question. And there's a lesson here for all of us. There will be times in our lives when we will need to pray, Lord, save me. Wicked men have risen up against me. And knowing that to be true, let us then endeavor not to be the wicked men or the wicked women. And if you have become such a person, I have counsel. It comes from Jesus. Go now to the person you have injured and confess your guilt and then do all you can to redress the evil that you have done. God's people must not be those who do harm. We should be known as people of truth and of of love, people who bless, people who are aware of their own sin, that is the log in our own eye before we seek to pluck out the speck in the other's eye. God's people must be known for these things. Now then, David, a man with no wrong on his hands, is being persecuted by a man who knows only evil. And he comes to God and he says, Oh, Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. And then he prays like this. He says, God, let there be no misunderstanding as to whom you favor. Show whom you favor. So here I'm reading Psalm 7, 6 to 10. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you who have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. So you're going to notice that David begins with the words, Arise, O Lord. I think the image we're to see here is that God is on his throne and suddenly something arises and in response, the righteous king rises up from his throne. And the minute the king does that, you can see the anger on his face. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. And the very act of arising shows the king's ready to act. There will no longer be discussion, but clearly this is the moment of action. Wickedness will now be put to an end. And you should have noticed the contrast in verse 6. God arises in his anger, and then, on the other hand, there is the fury of God's enemies. 
And we're supposed to imagine what should occur when the angry God faces the angry enemies. I mean, how's that going to turn out? Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. His anger overwhelms the anger of the wicked. God triumphs and his enemies fall before him. But David adds a little point right there at the end of verse 6. He says, you have appointed a judgment. See, David knows there is a time when the wicked are given a moment. That's they sin. There's no immediate response. And they come to a conclusion. They say, well, now, you know, I've done evil and there's no divine response. I'm going to do more evil. And still the heavens remain quiet. And they assume that no one in heaven cares. You might want to think about the words of Psalm 94, 6 to 7. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. And that would be a fatal mistake. So come back with me to Psalm 7, verse 6. And notice the last line. You have appointed a judgment. And that's the prayer of David. David's not naive thinking that whenever the righteous pray, the wicked are immediately destroyed. And might I add, that's not what happens today either, is it? The wicked persecute the righteous and the righteous pray, and heaven seems to remain inactive. But David's hope is not that every time wickedness is done that God will immediately act. His hope is in the appointed judgment. So follow me to verse 7. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. And the idea here is a time when the assembly of peoples, that is, all the peoples are gathered to God. And there, verse 8 begins with the words, the Lord judges the peoples. And the Hebrew word for judges assumes a legal setting. This is when the assembly of all the nations gather. This is to say, the God of heaven has reserved a fixed day in which judgment will be done. It's going to be righteous and just. No wicked deed will be overlooked. God has noted and kept a perfect record long after we've forgotten. Now then, in the next line in our psalm, it says, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now, if you don't know it, you should. You know, if God judges us according to our own righteousness, then no one will stand, for we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it sounds to some that when David says, you know, judge me according to my righteousness, that he sounds like a Pharisee here. I mean, assuming that he's going to be righteous enough for God. See, I think when David prays for his righteousness, he's not assuming he's sinless. Rather, he's praying for the particular situation he presently finds himself in. See, remember, evil men are trying to destroy him without cause, and he's been saying, if they have cause, let them succeed, but if not, then judge them and let me go free. And that's verse 10. My shield is with God. Now, having said that, let's go back to the the matter of the appointed day of judgment. What is God doing in the interim? Is he simply contenting himself that justice is going to eventually be done? Well, notice verse 11 very carefully. It says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If you're acting wickedly and persecuting others, you might want to remember that. If you're innocent of persecuting others, you also might want to remember that. God deeply cares about every act of persecution. Never forget that. He has not forgotten your cause. When evil men rise up against you, God burns with indignation against your persecutors. Now to verses 12 to 16. If a man does not repent, 
God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. You know, the wicked often fail to to understand the perilous condition they're in. In his very famous sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Pastor Jonathan Edwards depicted the wicked as walking over a rotten covering, never knowing at which moment their foot would step down and suddenly the ground beneath their feet would give way and they would fall into judgment, a judgment that was prepared for them. You know, they might imagine that the ground beneath their feet is safe, not knowing the nature of their present experience. And in the same way, the God who feels indignation every day is patient towards the persecutor, giving them time to repent. And in the meantime, God has been oiling his sword and bending and preparing his bow. He's preparing his arrows and he's dipping them in tar and lighting them on fire. And he stands ready to shoot. But the wicked seem unaware of how close they stand to judgment. Don't count on the endless patience of God who feels indignation every day. Fear God and do all that is necessary to repent and to reconcile to the one to whom you have harmed. But, says the psalm, the wicked is blind to the danger. But the godly content themselves in these things. And verse 17 then ends, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Never be a persecutor, but if you are a persecuted one, content yourself in this. God is at your right hand. He will protect you in the day of judgment. Thanks, John. You know, I think it's important to understand that when we're persecuted, when struggles arise, when things go wrong or not as we'd hoped, we should not automatically conclude that it's because we've done something wrong. So important, so important to remember. Of course, there are times we've done something wrong, but lest we are too willing to be, you know, overly introspective and uh, too sensitive about everything. I mean, we might remember that, you know, the God who loves us will show us what we have done wrong. And if he is not showing us that, we should therefore simply in prayer, ask God to deliver us from the trouble that we're in with a clear heart, clear conscience. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Psalms of Refuge, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Momentum is picking up as friends from across the country sign up for the 2022 Israel Experience. Join us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Against Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, David walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's royal palace. Sail the Sea of Galilee and join in communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last Israel experience said, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful. The trip of a lifetime. 
Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available online, and to ensure an intimate experience, numbers are limited. So register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.